Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. I am delighted to be joined by Caroline Mabon. Caroline, you're so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you, Susan. I'm so honoured to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's wonderful. My pleasure. I've been thinking a lot since our last conversation, and I came across this quote by Jacinta Arden. One of the criticisms I've faced over the years is that I'm not aggressive enough or assertive enough, or maybe somehow, because I'm empathetic, I'm weak. I totally rebel against that. I refuse to believe that you cannot be both compassionate and strong. She embodies that wonderful spirit of leadership, Caroline. What does leadership mean to you? Hallelujah to that quote. I love it. So for me, actually, I am hugely, and the work we do is hugely inspired by a quote from Bob Chapman, actually, from his book, Everybody Matters. And he describes leadership as the stewardship of lives entrusted to you, which I think is so powerful and so strong. And why I think that matters and why I think it relates to Jacinda and everything that she does is that I think she's driven by two things. I think she's driven by a really clear purpose and she's people-centered. And I think when you combine those two things together, it makes your ability to lead others. You become inspiring to other people. You take them with you. You bring out the best in them. You harness their uniqueness. You give them a reason to come to work. I think Jacinda has done that um, in a way that she's led through the pandemic, also in the way that she managed the terrible terrorist attacks in New Zealand. She's very, very clear on what's okay and what's not okay, but she embraces the population with huge empathy. And I think it's that balance of being really clear with your purpose and having this people-centric style that actually brings out the best in the people around you. And for me, that really matters because when we're really appreciated for who we are in the workplace, we not only do and bring our best at work and we collaborate more effectively with those around us, but we go home and we're better human beings at home. And the ripple effect of that on our families is great. And even more so, I think the idea of being able to let people be truly themselves in the workplace means that we listen some more perspectives and that really matters because we need to make a better planet and so the idea of leadership being the stewardship of lives entrusted to you I mean it's a huge honour and a huge responsibility 
to impact people's lives and you can do it in such a positive way that that ripple effect is good for profits it's really good for people and it's so good for the decisions we make about our beautiful planet as well I'm just trying to think, Caroline, about how many people I went to work with or work for that ever felt that my life was entrusted to them. And did I go that far to think, well, these lives are entrusted to me? Is it something we think about in the workplace? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I guess I'd ask you, have you experienced leaders who you felt genuinely cared about you and that your life mattered to them in terms of who you are as a person, as well as the kind of brilliance that you bring functionally to the workplace? Yeah, no, I do. Actually, now that you mention it, there is mm -hmm. one of my line managers in particular jumps out as somebody who cared, yes, about me as a person and I definitely was encouraged to bring my whole self to work. I maybe didn't think about my life being entrusted. No. Yeah. And for me, I think it's a really powerful quote. But what, what impact did that leader have on you because he cared about you and allowed you to bring your whole self to work? Oh, incredible. Because I think one of the things that I always think about is that I didn't need permission to take every step that I needed yeah. to take I yeah. I knew that the permission was there and yeah if I screwed up a bit or it didn't work out as it was meant to it wasn't because I did it maliciously and he knew that and he would have my back so that mm. gave me that feeling of someone has my back mm. and the door was always open and what about you Caroline you know have you had that yeah I definitely have and I I spent a long time in corporates I was uh, lucky enough to grow up as I describe it in Mars where I was part of what was I think a very people-centric culture a culture where on the whole leadership was phenomenal and I really was able to thrive and grow at work because I felt cared for I felt really clear on what I was there to do. And a bit like you, this idea that I could take my own steps there. If I wobbled or made the wrong step, I wasn't told off. I was supported and encouraged and I learned from it. I have also experienced other examples of leadership that put me into a state of paralysis, I would say, and fear. And I guess that happened to me before I joined corporate at a very young age when I think the impact on me was it took me a long while to get back in touch with my uniqueness and feel comfortable bringing my whole self to work. Mm. And I also have experienced it since leaving Mars in lots of the work that I've done in lots of different organisations. And I, I was even funnily enough talking yesterday to a young lady in her 20s who said that she had been in hospital and suffered huge anxiety because of the leadership in the organisation that she's part of. And that it was such a fear-based culture that she used to come out every night and sit in her car and cry and call her boyfriend. And I think that the difference in terms of the impact that that stewardship, I suppose, had on me. Although like you, I don't think I was conscious of it at the time. 
that enabled me to thrive at work. And, and I just want more and more leaders to, to feel that they can do that for people and to have the skills and self-understanding to know that actually leadership isn't just something that you fall into. So many leaders land in the positions that they are in because they're functionally amazing at what they do. I think that if we actually saw leadership as a, a huge responsibility, we might choose to upskill ourselves or to be more conscious about the way that we're leading simply. That's it, isn't it, Caroline? I suppose it all starts with a, a level of consciousness yeah. about how you are coming across in the workplace. And if I think about that girl in her 20s sitting in her car every evening crying, ending up in hospital, I think there are probably so many stories like that around that we don't actually really hear about unless mm. we know the people personally. Mm. But what kind of management structure or attitude do people have? It's like nobody goes to work hoping to make everybody else's life miserable. Agree. Or to scare the crap out of people in the office or anything like that. So where is the mismatch between my intention of leading and the actions that I use to lead by? I think that's a really great question. I think possibly there's a couple of things. I wonder whether some of it is, is the word consciousness. So the lack of clarity around actually, what is my responsibility as a leader? How do I even want to lead? And I think the other thing is, and this is certainly an observation I've had, even in all of the years that I worked at Mars, where I was given so much wonderful investment in my personal development on how to lead others. I don't think that I spent much time understanding myself during that time and understanding how, what it meant for me to be resilient, what I needed for me to be okay, because if I'm not okay, I'm not going to bring my best self to work. And the poor people around me are going to get the stressed out version of me. And I think my observation is so many leaders end up burning themselves out because they're so busy serving others before they've learned to really harness themselves, understand themselves, work out what it is that makes them brilliant and what things they can put in their life in order to be able to bring that brilliance every day so that they can serve the people around them. Mm. That's, that's a brilliant observation, I think, from you on yourself, that actually you were learning how to lead others, but not learning about you as the leader, perhaps. Mm. And I wonder if that's what a lot of us do. We spend our time figuring out how we can be a better leader or manager, how we get people motivated and everything, but we don't understand our own. I really think so. And I don't know about you, but if you go back to some of the experiences you've had and you've talked about the leader that really cared for you and enabled you to bring your best, I wonder whether there are also some leaders that were simply emulating the experience they'd had from their leaders before them. Because unless we really get conscious and, and, and really think about the way that we want to lead, we end up being a carbon copy of somebody who isn't us, <laughs> which is inauthentic. It makes us feel pretty miserable too. 
But the impacts on others is that this is the way it was done to me. And therefore, this is how I need to do it to others. And I've certainly been on the receiving end of that. My first job was a really young guy who properly bullied me in the workplace. This was a student job during the summer holidays. Do I think he intentionally wanted to make my day miserable? No, but do I think that he was possibly shown that that was what leadership was and that he would be in charge of me and that was a way of controlling me? Then then I, I think so. And so I don't think anybody is inherently choosing to bring misery to anybody's life. I wonder whether they don't stand back and wonder what impact they are having, though. Obviously, we can't speculate whatever is going through somebody else's head Absolutely. or anything. But I guess it's a mixture, like you say, of not taking time to reflect, of following what other people did, taking it on. And then it becomes a pattern or a habit. It's kind of sad to think that you can spend your working life instilling fear in others and not reaching your own potential to be a wonderful leader. I think that is sad and I guess that is why we have such disengagement in workplaces. Yeah I was going to talk about that actually because when you mentioned do people really want to make other people's lives miserable and you kind of wonder whether the stories you hear are one-offs but we have a massive challenge with engagement. So it's 83% of the UK workforce is um, either disengaged or ambivalent about their job or their company. And for me, that's a whole lot of people bringing their enormous potential to work every day and switching it off. And yet we know that there is such a prize to be had, a financial prize, a performance prize to organisations when we can tap into what truly engages people. I think there's, there's evidence from a survey from Talent for Growth that says that highly engaged teams generate up to 21% higher profitability. So there is a financial prize to investing in this kind of stuff. For me, the financial prize is really important because that's why a business exists. And, but actually, what if we could just change our paradigm about work and just realize that we're spending a lot of our lives rocking up somewhere and actually, wouldn't it be amazing if we could create workplace experiences that not only generated huge amounts of money for the company, but where every single person felt recognised, valued, celebrated for who they are, that we were harnessing all this beautiful diversity in the world to make better decisions for our world? Yeah, it, it doesn't sound that far-fetched. And it also sounds like utopia. You know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> this is really kind of yeah. I don't know. It's it's really hard, and I I guess in a way, our view or our vision of leadership, we might talk about Jacinta Ardern like we did at the beginning, mm. but actually we still see Boris Johnson or Donald Trump as leaders like the real men who stand up and the alpha males they show strength well do they I mean I don't know if you'd, I would call it strength they certainly show power so can people be strong as leaders and have compassion oh I would say a big hell yeah to that because for me compassion takes strength I think Compassion isn't light and weak. It is courageous, caring, strong and effective. And there's a difference between the kind of dictionary 
definition of the word compassion and what we mean, I guess, when we're describing a compassionate culture or a compassionate leader. And, and that's where I think the two words that I spoke about earlier really come in. So this idea of being people-centered and really putting your people at the heart of the business and loving them almost with being really, really focused on why you're there and what your purpose is. So being purpose-led, people-centered is this balance of what we think makes a compassionate leader. And why that matters, and I think Jacinda is a really great example, is because if we're only people-centered, we might be in danger of just really caring about a person. And that's okay, but we might forget to care about why we're actually here, which is to build, develop and grow a business. And if we're only purpose centred, we might be so blinded by the results and what we're trying to achieve that we might forget to take people with us. So I think it's about having a real balance between being people centred and purpose focused. And in a way, I'm quite glad that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are where they are, because I think they're exposing the problems of almost through the pandemic and what's happened in the last couple of years. I'm, I mean, I am definitely not glad that they were voted in, but I think they're almost caricatures of a style which is becoming old fashioned and outdated. And there is compassion in action through people like Jacinda Ardern, who through what she's achieving, I mean, didn't New Zealand become the first country to open back up again? Weren't they the fastest country to lock down? You know, that's strength in leadership, that's brave, that's being compassionate and strong. And, you know, I love the words that I refuse to believe because she's leading by a wonderful example of what can happen when you create what I would describe as a properly compassionate workplace culture or a culture in your country that is people-centred and purpose-driven. And she's being herself. Oh, 100%. And, and, and I guess what the other point is, what we're not trying to say is that everybody should be the same far from it <laughs> definitely not no 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 but it's tapping into that that I suppose I mean we all have it I guess there's an innate sense of wisdom with compassion or strength that we all have mm. and it's it's drawing them out in a way that allows you to lead like you say with purpose to actually yeah. do whatever you're there to deliver but also in a way that brings people with you not forces Absolutely. them yeah yeah there's a there's a, another beautiful quote on leadership from Simon Sinek um he says if your actions inspire others to dream more learn more do more and become more then you are a leader and I think that's exactly what you're saying isn't it it's about showing up as you but really identifying how you can help everybody else show up as them as well and I worry that too many workplace cultures have created a way of being that is conformist is making people become part of something and they either feel that they're not and therefore they feel disengaged or that then it's a narrow-minded world because it's not embracing all these wonderful richness in different people's perspectives and ideas that could really boost productivity and performance through enhancing creativity and innovation 
all the things that we're going to need to keep our <laughs> to keep our businesses future fit really absolutely and the environment that you create has to be able to sustain that you know mm. you're never going to have creativity and innovation in a fear-based environment absolutely and I know because I worked in an organization that operated off fear it was quite fear-based and every now and then we would have a workshop to innovate <laughs> doesn't work like that you cannot get together and force innovation and all you did was really reinforce the leader's viewpoint you know that that's what you were there to do is to reinforce their viewpoint so what if I'm a leader in a of a team let's say it doesn't even have to be an organization but a team and I I feel that perhaps the people side, I have the purpose sorted, but the people side is is my weakness, my Achilles heel. What do I do? Great question. I would say the first thing to do is understand yourself because often there's a bit of a blind spot in terms of what we understand others are seeing of us. And sometimes that can be the thing that helps us unlock why we've got some blocks around people. There are lots of ways that you can do that. We love using um, psychometric tools like Insights Discovery. I think it's a really powerful tool to help you, first of all, understand yourself and then understand what motivates other people so that you can modify your behavior to communicate with them more effectively. I think we need to be brave and ask for feedback and receive that in a way that is gracious, and that we want to do something about it. And that's going to take courage because that's about going to your team and going, look, I want you to give me feedback and I am going to engage with and listen to what you say, but it's really important to me that I hear your truth. And if the culture's fear-based, that's going to be a challenge initially because people might not feel brave enough to say what they think for worry that their job's going to be on the line because of it. So what ways might you do conduct some anonymous surveys, 360s? But I certainly think there's a bit about tapping into me and understanding me and my drivers. And I think learning to listen is a skill that we've really lost. And even if it's about just telling yourself I've got two ears and one mouth and being super conscious of that and being really curious when someone else speaks I think that could be quite transformational in terms of the impact that that has on people I think it's about building psychological safety with people so that they feel like you care about them as individuals and so that might be about asking questions about what they've been up to at the weekend and taking time to learn about what matters to each of the individuals within your team. I think we did that really well at the start of lockdown. I think everybody was so freaked out by what was going on in the world that we sort of checked in on everybody and our conversations were very care-centered. I don't know about you, but what we've observed over the last 18 months is that conversations have become very transactional more latterly. People are jumping onto Zoom to get what they need and they're forgetting to do that important check-in. And yet what we also know is that the longer the pandemic has been going on, the more anxiety has increased. We had that flight and fight 
mechanism kick in when it first happened and we were all just coping like we might do in wartime but now we're coming out of that the repercussions on individuals is is huge I heard somewhere that like loneliness is at an all-time epidemic we've had thousands and thousands of youngsters confined to small rooms in in flats and houses and distance from human connection which is something that is a basic human need and so for me it's about tapping into the things that make us human and just being really really conscious about the fact that yes we come to work because we need to get stuff done but we're the same people there's there's nothing different it's just this facade that we seem to put on when we come to work that, that changes who we are and that seems a bit ridiculous it doesn't seem ridiculous it is ridiculous it is ridiculous <laughs> it is and, and and yet it's not here i go again with my paradox because in a way i would say that when i joined the workforce that that's how i was meant to behave mm. that when i went through the door I don't think anyone explicitly said that, but that was certainly my sense. When I went through that door, I was Susan the professional. And when I left, I was Susan the personal. And never the twain shall meet. I, I certainly feel the same. You know, when I started jobs, it was what is your posh suit going to look like? How do you suit up? How do you get the power suits? The power suit, the very words about it don't really sit very well with me now at all. And I do think it's important that we're conscious about how we want to show up at work. So there might be elements of our life that we choose to dial down a little bit in order to make everything work effectively. But the idea that we're different people and we have to kind of armour up when we come into work is, I think going to become very, very old fashioned. And I do also believe that the pandemic might have just put the foot down on the accelerator through that as we've literally been zooming into each other's homes. We've been seeing people's family walking around in the background. It's more, it's never been less real in that it's virtual, but it, in other ways, another, there's another <laughs> contrast, but it, but it is real in the sense that we're seeing a human being. And I think, that is something that's really precious that we should consciously choose to hold on to as we move forward, as the world opens back up again, and that we shouldn't blindly just go, oh, let's flip flop back to where we were before, but let's have honest conversations with our teams and with our people about what we've loved about the last 18 months. And I think we could probably all say that despite the fact we've been in probably the most bizarre 18 20 months of our lives there are elements that we've loved like having our families around like being a bit closer to people like not having to do the long commute every day like possibly even working more globally or nationally as we are less confined by geographical distances let's hold on to some of that stuff and make conscious choices about the way we want to be at work moving forward. And then what is the stuff we want to leave behind? And um, there will be a lot of that as well. <laughs> but let's have these conversations together and let's assume that the role of the leader is to be really, really clear about the direction, but to open up real conversation about how we get there 
in a way that really allows people to bring their best selves to work and bring their brilliance and inject that into our futures. And that takes strength, Caroline. That takes real courage to be vulnerable Mm. in front of the people who in effect look up to you or you want to keep at arm's length for whatever reason because you think that's the way you're meant to behave and to flip that or change that direction I think does take a lot of courage for people I think you're spot on it's not easy. I, I'm a massive fan of, of vulnerability. Brené Brown is, is a hero to me and all of her work around Dare to Lead. And I remember watching her TED talk on the art of vulnerability, gosh, years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago, and just feeling this really powerful connection to it. This idea that actually when people are open about who they are, the impact that they have on others, feeling like it's okay to share that they're not perfect too. And actually, I believe you create more followers by doing that. But you do pose a really great question or challenge, which is it's really, really hard to do that in an organization where nobody else is doing it. So how do we do that? And I think there's two things. I think one is being brave enough to do it on your own and having the courage to really stand up for what you believe in. And and if the company is not interested, perhaps being brave enough to vote with your feet and go and work somewhere that does more align with your cultural values. And then I think the other thing that we've certainly observed is that in order for culture to change, it has to be embraced and bodied by the organization. It has to be articulated it has to be communicated really clearly and people have to be given the permission to go on the journey of we are like this today we want to be like this tomorrow as in the future and we want to help you get there and we will be measuring or assessing progress towards that goal And I believe until leadership becomes something that we are measured on in terms of the impact that we have, then it's going to be a challenge for some organisations to shift leaders from pursuing financial goals instead of thinking about, actually, if I invest in my people, I'm more likely to achieve that financial goal. So it's whether you do it with or without people. <laughs> Good luck doing it without them. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, I know, I know what you mean, but it's this whole cost thing, mm. isn't it? We mm. cut costs, and the first thing that we cut is cost related to people. And we would rather spend money on artificial intelligence than on human intelligence or social intelligence. Mm. And Unfortunately, there is still an air of that in many of our workplaces. And what came to mind while you were talking was, have you ever seen leadership lessons from Dancing Guy? Yes. Yes. A follower. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brilliant. And I think that's what it is. It's, you know, he's vulnerable standing up, going a bit crazy in a crowd. And it's well worth watching. I'll put a, a, a link to it in the show notes. Wonderful. But I think... 
you can easily say that our organization isn't like this. This is what I hear all the time. You know, this is, we're not like this here. We're not going to do that. And I think the strength, the vulnerability, the compassion, it's not about keeping the peace and saying this is good enough. It's, it's about standing up for what you believe in and making that change. And if you do end up walking and using your feet to do that talking, fine, but don't sit there and not do anything and say that everyone else is responsible. I don't know about you, Susan, but I, I in the conversations I have with people about the belief I have around work should be a place of joy, a place where absolutely everybody should and deserves to thrive and grow. Everybody I speak to nods profusely in terms of this is absolutely right. This is absolutely the kind of workplace cultures we should be having. And I think the challenge is influencing the decision makers or the gatekeepers at the very senior levels in organizations who perhaps aren't close enough to some of these challenges and one of the things we also know is that the younger generations they are standing up for themselves and they're not willing to conform to the things that we were willing to conform to like we were on a treadmill or a a conveyor belt of when you go to work you put on a suit you walk through the door (laughs) and this is who you are as we've said And there is huge evidence to say that that is not what the younger generations want. They want to find real meaning in their work. They want to work for organizations that are doing good (laughs) in some shape or form. And they want to be valued for their uniqueness. So if we choose to stand still, if we choose to carry on because it's all just fine as it is, then we risk losing our ability to retain great people but also to attract the people who are going to make our business brilliant in the future as well and I think that is going to be a real challenge to lots of organizations now especially because lockdown and the pandemic again has shown us that remote working does work so I'm now hearing stories of people being recruited into London firms who previously might have thought, I'm not going to go and work in London because the barrier of cost, travel, lifestyle, living down there is too high. That's changing now. So it's an employee's market right now. It is. It really is. And I suppose if we're all working remotely all the time, let's say you take a job in London and you're based up in Edinburgh, Mm. can we build and retain compassionate cultures in that way if we never sit in a room together? Personally, I don't think so. I don't think the answer is five days a week back in the office either. I I think the important thing is that leaders and their teams get together and have real conversations about why they exist what it is that they're trying to achieve, the conversation we've talked about, what have we learned during lockdown that's been great, what's not been so great, and how do we want to work moving forward to enable us as a collective to collaborate most effectively together. And I went to an office this week and it was amazing. They have basically created collaborative workstations and it's a joyous place to walk into actually. It's colourful, it's groovy, it's different. And they've really responded to, we recognise that we're not going to have everybody here 
every day of the week now. But when they do come, it's like a let's choose to come together to collaborate and to share experiences and to learn from one another. And I think if we lose those moments, we're going to lose the progress we've made over lots of years around creativity and innovation, because your idea will spark my idea. And Zoom does not for me and not for many, I don't believe, have the same impact. Um, one of the challenges is getting everybody to speak up. It's getting everybody fully present in the conversation. <laughs> I don't know how many Zoom calls you've been on where it's quite obvious that someone's checking their emails or they go off to take a phone call. Like that disengagement means that they're not fully in the conversation and therefore they're not fully contributing, even if it's just listening to contribute. Mm. And, and then the listening, because you talked really nicely about listening earlier on and I meant to go that way. And now that you've mentioned it again, the, the one mouth, two ears. And there is a lot of listening to respond as opposed to listening to understand. I guess that's what a lot of us spend our time doing as well. We feel we have to give an answer when actually maybe all we need to do is listen. Completely. Caroline, who is my business partner, talks about overlapping monologues and the art of conversation is something that, again, I think we're losing. I'm reading a, an amazing book at the moment, which is really inspiring me. And I could wax lyrical about for hours by Nancy Klein called Time to Think. You know it. I do. Um, I'm a big fan. Yeah, big fan. Amazing. Yeah. The idea that actually giving people space and asking pertinent questions and, and raising their consciousness of the things they're perhaps not thinking about through great questioning, but really giving them the space and time to think is so powerful and it's something that we're so desperate to get our own ego in and our own our own part of the story that we often forget to really hear what someone else is saying I actually experienced it this morning with some friends who were actually sort of at odds with one another in terms of what they were saying but only because they weren't actually engaging in what's really hearing what the other person was saying they were hearing it through an emotional lens and it was quite interesting standing back and observing that because both of their intent was really positive but the the distance that it was driving between them because they weren't actually truly seeking to understand what the other person was saying was quite immense and i think abounds in our workplaces completely it's almost bringing us full circle to it's not that if the intent is there when you go to work to be to do the best job you can but if you're not listening to what your colleagues are saying mm -hmm. no wonder there's fear because I'm afraid to tell you because I know you're not going to listen to me and, and the reason that we focus so much on leadership is because leadership has such a huge influence over culture. If your leader doesn't listen, you're watching them and you're observing them and you're thinking that's what you should do. And so that is part of why focusing on leadership, we believe, will really help to create more compassionate workplace cultures. Yeah. Brilliant. So tell us about compassionate culture Caroline and how does somebody connect with you if they want to know more 
Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. So we're a business with a shared passion for igniting a compassion revolution in the way that we lead ourselves, in the way that we lead each other and in the way that we lead our organisations. And we fundamentally believe that work should be a place of joy, a place where absolutely everybody deserves to thrive and grow. And we focus on developing um, purpose-led, people-centred leaders who enable both the people in the organisation and the organisation itself to thrive. And we've identified through a combination of experience and research, seven key attributes, which we see as inextricably linked that form the foundation of a compassionate workplace culture. And we work with organisations to identify and diagnose how well those attributes are showing up in the workplace. So we get individuals in the workplace to to feed in through a, a diagnostic. And then we pinpoint where we can add the most value in terms of helping to shape performance around those attributes. So that's what we do. If you want to find out a bit bit more about the attributes, you can take our diagnostic and you get a little report back, which gives you some insight as to how you could be more compassionate to yourself and understand yourself better. And you can access that on our website, www.compassionate-cultures.co.uk. You can also find us on Instagram, Compassionate Cultures, or you can link in with me, Caroline Maybon, (laughs) M-A-B-O-N. It's a bucket bouquet name. Brilliant. So Caroline, thank you so much for that wonderful conversation today. And I think we could probably speak for ages longer about this. And I don't even think we got through half the stuff we planned on talking about, but it was brilliant to get a flavor of of what is possible for people. And it's so wonderful to be talking to you, Susan, because I felt from the moment we met, we were kindred spirits on the same mission. And so, yeah, hopefully let's stay in touch. And thank you so much for giving me some time to talk. And thank you for listening to me today. And, and likewise, thank you, Caroline. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to Susan at beyond-the-numbers.com And finally, please consider leaving a review.